Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Podcast, everybody. We're just coming off a world championship weekend. Quite a fantastic weekend of racing. We've got most of the crew here today. Dane Cash, how you doing, Dane? Yeah, doing good. And Shoddy Dave. Shoddy Dave, hanging out somewhere in your house with a small, not no longer screaming child, which is very good. No, she's she's quit screaming. She's been screaming since about four thirty yesterday after one of her fifty percent native uh, people won. Oh, very excited! Over half's British, isn't it? She's fifty fifty. <laughs> and we've got Jose, who just wrapped up her weekend in Imola. You're headed back up toward home now right yeah 500 more kilometers to go and unlike you american people i can't do 1500k a day so um (laughs) i'm having a nice sleepover in germany which is basically the only country i'm allowed in due to the new covid regulations because things are getting pretty out of hand in the netherlands at the moment we're becoming pariahs well yeah we can tell you what that's like yeah (laughs) stuck stuck over here for the last six months (laughs) anyway let's get into we're gonna talk about the world championships we're gonna talk about the upcoming races because uh i believe jose was it you that pointed this out or was it dane that pointed this out that we are in the only day without a bike race for the next 42 days something like that 48 48 days yeah there's a lot of bike racing coming is what I'm trying to say. So <laughs> we're going to talk crazy. about the Giro. We're going to talk about the Ardennes. And then we're going to wrap up today's episode with a chat that I had last week with Tade Pogacar's coach, a guy named Inigo San Milan, who I've known for, for many years and is, uh, well, one of the premier physiologists in the world uh, and also cancer researcher, actually. So we'll get into chatting with Inigo about Pogacar's power numbers, how all of this is possible, and the things that he saw when he first started testing Tade back in 2018, when he was really just a kid. So we'll get to that at the end of the episode. But first and foremost, let's talk worlds. Dane, what uh, what happened over the weekend since we last made a podcast, end of last week? Yeah, I guess a lot's happened uh, since we last made a podcast. Uh We've had some time trials, and we've obviously had some road races, so we have four new world champions uh, across the four different races. Uh, Anna van der Breggen won the women's TT, uh, Philip Ogana won the men's TT, and then we had Anna van der Breggen again on Saturday, doubling up, which is a obviously very impressive feat. I don't think it's been done in 25 years since Jeannie Longo. Did so with a really impressive long-range attack. She went from about 40k out attacking a pretty select group um, and there was no catching her. There was there was a little bit of hesitation in the chase behind and it was a pretty strong group behind her that was chasing uh, but there was not enough cooperation to bring her back and obviously she has a huge engine so who knows if they would have brought her back anyway um, and it helped that she had Annemiek van Vleuten back there. Uh, van Vleuten would finish second just ahead of Elisa Longo-Borghini. So big weekend for the Dutch, Anna van der Breggen doubling up. So it was her second world road title in three years and her second world championships win in three days. Uh, not a bad Saturday for Anna van der Breggen. And then at the men's race was another case of a big star putting in a big solo move. Uh, Julien Alaphilippe went a little later than Anna van der Breggen with his decisive attack from about 12k out. Uh, but decisive nonetheless and again a strong group behind chasing with some very very big names there were five riders 
in a select chase group behind. We can talk all about this. Um, we had Von Art, Mark Hershey, Mikov Kwiatkowski, Jakub Fulsong, Primoz Roglic as well, all behind chasing. Nobody could bring Julian Alaphilippe back, and he his gap didn't... Uh, you know, didn't really go over 30 seconds for the entire way home, but he made it uh, with a 24-second gap and and uh, had enough time to celebrate his first ever world title and France's first men's world road title since Laurent Brochard in 1997. It's been a while. Not quite as long as uh, Tour de France, but, you know, still a while. The French are happy, right, Dave? Oh, they're made up, mate. It's across all the newspapers. It's just a really nice story, isn't it? Alaphilippe, he comes from a bit of a rough background. He grew up, people probably may know, uh, in, I suppose, what you Americans call the projects. He grew up in like, the, the social housing areas uh, here in France. So he's showing kids, I suppose, that, yeah, you can make it from any sort of background. You don't need to go and jump on a moped and scream round town. Just like Brochard showed it, all the French back in 97, that you can do anything with terrible haircut. <laughs> really an inspiration, Brochard was, on, the, on that front. Uh, yeah, and Al Philippe, you know, you can, you can come from the, the social housing and now wear a $168,000 watch on your way to your world championship victory, which is, I believe, the same watch he was wearing when he took the old jersey at the Tour de France a couple weeks ago. We have a story about that. Uh, as always, you know, our, our our chief expensive watch correspondent, Ian Trellor, was on the case back at the Tour de France and made sure we got a story up on that. Uh, give it a quick Google if you're not sure what I'm talking about. Was there any controversy? I want to start with the women's race. Was there any controversy in the women's race? We were talking before the race started about, you know, the potential for, well, the issues with Anamie van Vluten riding with a broken wrist and, and things like that. But it ended up being kind of straightforward, right? I think that's probably fair to say. Um, we didn't. I mean, she certainly didn't have a like, cause a massive crash. Uh, like I think there was some concern. Um, you know, at the end of the day, she wasn't the one putting in the the race winning attack, uh, but she was definitely a factor in the race, a big factor in the race, as as we kind of thought she might be. Um, just having those two cards, well, like six cards, really. I mean, the, the Dutch, the entire Dutch team is super strong. Um, but yeah, it, it, she definitely played a role. But yeah, no, nobody. Um, Nobody was crashed out by her, and, and otherwise, I don't, you know, I don't think there was a whole lot of controversy there. Uh, just a really, really nice win, and a great—if you haven't seen it yet—a great tracking shot uh, of Anna van der Breggen on her way to victory uh, from the side that you got to see. Uh, and they, they did it again for a couple of other riders over the course of the weekend, uh, but it was really stunning—the uh, the camera work there on her win. Uh, Anna McFloyd had a really good um, interview after the race, saying that. By no means she wants to advertise that riding with a broken wrist is the way to go. Uh, just like she did an interview with me um, saying, for example, that her race weight last year at Worlds was not a great example. Um, luckily, everything went okay. She's pulling out of the flesh wallon um, on Wednesday because, well, you need some handlebar pulling on that climb for sure. <laughs> and they do it, I think, two or three times, the women. So uh, yeah, it was it was a great race. Uh, Elisa Longo-Borghini, of course, the home favorite on on the podium, which was an emotional moment for her. And she had a really powerful statement at the press conference, saying that in March they were uh, the plague bearers of the world because Italy and especially the north where she's from was was hit really really badly with the coronavirus. And now 
they are an example to the world. You know, the IOC chairman Thomas Bach was there saying that the IOC World Champ or the UCI World Championships were an example to the world in Italy. And she was really proud that that was the outcome. So she was really proud on that podium, Longo Borghini. And it was it was a great race where um, the women raced, I think, three laps from the end. The first two laps were kind of tame because everybody seemed really afraid of the course. So they, they rode it up pretty slowly for their standards. For other people's standards, it was pretty fast. So yeah, it was it was a great championship. And of course, Anna van der Breggen, she won the national title in the last five weeks. She won her third Giro. She won a European time trial championship and two world titles. To, to sort of return to the, the organization itself, Jose, you did a piece on sort of pulling this whole weekend together and how quickly that happened and and yeah and how impressive it was that the, the weekend happened at all right to, to, to sort of return to what Longo Brighini had said it was pretty amazing that we had a world championships come together this this quickly this well to apparently have gone off without a hitch you were on the ground there I mean it, it was definitely an, an, an interesting place to be over the last week uh, from a safety perspective and your, you know, your access to riders and things like that. But can you just talk a little bit about, about what that was like, like what it looked like on the ground in, in Imola? Um, of course, the, the great thing was they already had the infrastructure at the Formula One circuit. Uh, the Formula One race is next month, so everything was ready there. Uh, the riders could use the paddocks, you know, the individual paddocks that every Formula One team has. So everybody has their separate space to do a warm-up. Everything was so closely guarded, you could not come near riders. The only riders you could see were actually the first three because they ended up in the mix zone. And before the race, there were some riders passing the mix zone. But, you know, for the kind of pieces that I ride, um, having one or two quotes in the mix zone is is not really useful. Um, and they also end up on television anyways. So that was really, that was really hard for a first world championships on site. But they did it in 22 days. They heard on the 1st of September that they got the bid for the World Championships. He was the, the race organizer. He was still organizing the uh, Giro under 23. You know, he was still on the ground there. And in 22 days, they paved basically half of the half of the course with new asphalt, all the climbs, all the descents. They had all the police on board, all the national uh, lo and local authorities. And we always say in Europe that in Italy, it's very hard to get things done because the bureaucracy in Italy is is terrible. But this was that is the 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 way that most European countries look at Italy. But this was this was impressive. This was absolutely impressive. And Mariana Vos, she told me that if you would know um, that they heard it three weeks ago, you would never tell. For the riders, it was perfect. They had their safe space where nobody could come near them um, in, in these times of COVID. So the riders themselves were really happy with it. They were happy with the course. It was a really good selective course and it was safe. So yeah, it was it was a masterpiece that they pulled this together in, in three weeks. Even little things like the like the website was pretty good and the and the you know the, the profiles that we got and things like that. Like all of these things that came together so fast. Yeah, things like just signage. Really of, impressive. Yeah. Yeah, also things like signage, you know, where to go, where to park. And of course UCI has some experience with that, but you need the people on the ground to to, to just put all those uh, billboards everywhere. You you wouldn't say when you were walking in Imola that the world championships were happening there at all. 
there was there was no atmosphere in the town. Nobody basically knew. They maybe have read it in the local paper, but there were no billboards or something advertising. It was just at the circuit, but there were many people out. And um, the camper vans were, were, of course, present everywhere. And I think there was quite a big crowd, not exactly mm. what they wanted because there was a lot of non-mask wearing, especially on the climbs. But the, the place where I was standing, the police were really um, seeing to it that everybody wore their masks and otherwise you just had to step back three meters from the, right. from the barriers. That's good. Yeah. Kudos to the race organizer. Really, really, truly impressive that that was able to, to go off. Let's step over to the men's race on Sunday. A uh, bit, of, bit of controversy here. I don't know if controversy is really the right term. Kind of uh, manufactured controversy, perhaps, is maybe the way that we would view it. But behind Julian Alphilippe, there was a, a chase, and that was really the source of, of the angst post-race. There was very specifically localized controversy. I didn't hear about this except in one place. Everybody else in the world seemed to be not at all surprised about this, and, and everybody else was talking about it so, solely in reaction to one place's uh, frustration. The two Belgian commentators, they have done this before. You know, when Nicky Terpstein won Roubaix, he stole it from Tom Bona. Um, Tom Bona attacked 60 kilometers out from the finish line that year, and Nicky Terpstein waited. They were on the same team. And Erik Broking, the uh, uh, former Dutch rider, he put it really well. You know, in football, Frankie de Jong and Lionel Messi are in the same team in Barcelona. If Argentina and the Netherlands play each other, Frankie de Jong is not passing a ball to Lionel Messi. So why should Primoz Roglic help Wout van Aert? Um, Wout van Aert himself has been really gracious in defeat. He said, Julian Alaphilippe, he attacked on the big ring, on that steepest part of the climb, and he just could not follow. And he said, Primoz was totally empty. But Primoz Roglic has got so much criticism in the, in the past eight days, on that final day of the Tour de France, and now again, you really have to feel for the guy. You know, this is, he's, he's a very kind-hearted guy. And just like we discussed during the Tour de France, he really can't express himself really well in English, which makes him look pretty cold and, and not emotional, but he just can't get his feelings across. But the way that the Belgian commentators and the Belgian media are really stirring this, that uh, Primoz Roglic should have brought the group back for Wout van Aert is, is terrible. And it happens in Belgium a lot. Well, and not to mention the fact that it's just, as you say, it's just sort of incorrect, right? I, I mean, Wout van Aert is, is, is quoted as saying numerous times that Roglic had nothing left in the tank. You know, Roglic doing a bunch of massive pulls was not in the cards at that point in time. The gap was still, you know, relatively large at that point. It was probably going to take more than just one individual to pull that whole thing back. Roglic did not look like that individual. And, as you said, why would you pass the ball? <laughs> like, there's, there's no... Just because you are on the same trade team. And, and you know, the argument was basically, well, Wapenart did so much work for Roglic over the three weeks of the Tour de France that they sort of repay him, right? And, you know, on a, you, can, you can kind of, you can see why there's sort of like an emotional response to that. But at the same time, this is Worlds, and they're wearing different kits. And, you know, the, the, I think that the way that Roglic and Pogacar both rode showed that they came into this with a plan for them to win the World Championships, not for Wout van Aert to win the World Championships. And How do you think, yeah, yeah how do you think Roglic goes back to his own country if he... If he was going to lead that chase group for Wout van Aert, who is not from Slovenia the last time I checked. 
It's just a, it's just a ridiculous assumption. It's just a ridiculous assumption. Of course, it happens with some small countries. I remember the London road race eight years ago, where Siftsov, who was riding on Team Sky, was riding for the British. You know, he was on his own for Belarus, and he was helping the British in that race. And there was one Greek guy pretty early on in the race helping out, and he 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 rides on a Belgian continental team, so they may have asked him that but you know this is the final this is the final 10 kilometers and of course they say Primoz Roglic could not have won the race but you don't know what might have happened you know last year everybody we had a sprint of three and everybody says now Mats Pedersen is not going to win that or about of Mathieu van der Poel is going to win that race but it's 260 kilometers with 5,000 meters of elevation it's not a normal sprint it's not a normal finish so you can't decide 15 kilometers from the finish line uh, that you are going to sacrifice your own chances, that your country had a plan for, for the person. There's one day a year that you're not working for your trade team buddies. And also from Belgium, and it kind of shows the mindset there. Patrick Lefebvre has a column in the Nieuwsblad, um, and the column was before the World Championships. And he said, Dries Deveneins called me and he said, I'm not going to ride for the Belgian national team. Because 364 days a year, I have to protect Julian Alaphilippe. And then one day a year, I have to go and catch him back. I don't want to do that. And um, Patrick Lefebvre said, yeah, I'm not a big fan of the trade teams because I pay these riders to have the logos on the shirts and on national kits. They don't. But then the last sentence was, if one of my riders become a world champion, I do kind of fancy that, that jersey. But it kind of shows already before that... <laughs> You know, Dries Devenheins even pulled out of the race because he didn't want to work against his own teammates, which is gracious, mm. but it, it shows the kind of mindset. It's a weird thing, you know, you, you ride on trade teams the rest of the year and one day you ride against each other. Yeah, I mean, it. it's certainly strange. It's certainly strange. And you can 100% see how somebody like Roglic would turn around and say, all right, I'll take a couple extra pulls because you took a lot of pulls for me a month ago. But you can't expect that, right? There's a big difference between that sort of happening naturally and then also, and then and then really sort of an obvious kind of collusion, uh, which is a bit sort of, well, you just can't, you can't demand that from any rider at Worlds, particularly in the finale like that. Also, like taking pulls for Roglic at the Tour de France, that was his job. That's a, like Wafanar gets paid a lot of money to do that. It's not like Roglic has any obligation to to do something for him in a different situation. I mean, Roglic's job on Sunday was to try to win the race for Slovenia. It had nothing to do with with Jumbo Visma, and and Wafanar gets paid a, quite a bit of money to go to the tour, do that, also win some stages, by the way. Exactly, and it's then not go like win the classics. It's not like his entire Tour de France was in ruins because he had to work for Primoz Roglic yeah, three weeks. He exactly. won two stages. For himself, yeah. you know, totally. It's it's a weird discussion, but I have to add that most people that reacted on my tweet, just the, like the regular Belgians, so not the media, they said they are they are on our um, on our side here, and they, they are also thinking that the Belgian commentators really made a fool of themselves here. Yeah, and the Belgian they're just media drumming up controversy. Yeah, yeah, they're just stirring up controversy, stirring up clicks, and that's that's you know that's just. Sports writing at, at some point. Uh, well, anything, any other, anything else to discuss coming out of Worlds? Yeah, I think we should really just talk. We should talk about Julian Alaphilippe and and how he has capped off like a, a year and a half of being, 
I think really emerging as one of the most popular riders in the sport and also one of the most successful riders in the sport. He's a monument winner. He's worn the yellow jersey of the tour. He's won a bunch of tour stages. Uh, he's a contender anytime you have a hilly one-day race. And now he's got the biggest the biggest prize he's gotten yet, which is a world title. And he's a great world champion. Uh, he's a very likable rider. He's a very popular rider. Um, I, I think he's got a ton of fans, not just in France, but all over the world. And I, I think it's really it's good for the sport to have a, a popular world champion like Julien Alaphilippe, uh, who is also, by the way, going to have an opportunity to shine in the rainbow jersey the year that he won it, which is really unusual because usually you get you just get Lombardia. That's it. That's the only race really that, that I mean, okay, Tour Guangxi. But you mostly just get uh, in Lombardia after the World Championship. Shine so brightly at the Tour yeah, of Guangxi, though. You just which, like you like know, a, the North Star. You it's know? a shame, but uh, he's going to get an opportunity to race some of his, his best races, uh, races where he tends to be among the favorites. So that's pretty exciting. He's not going to ride flesh on, on Wednesday, though. He needs some time off after all these emotions because you know he, he lost his dad a few months ago and um it, it the the la one of the last podcasts on the tour de france kaylee you asked the last time i cried at a bike race and last week it happened twice so i <laughs> i don't know what happened maybe i've become an emotional wreck here but it happened with the belgian national championship i wrote a story about dries de bond on on the website how he came back from a two-week coma six years ago and is now belgian champion and it happened, of course, on Saturday, no, but on, on Sunday, if you saw Alaphilippe cry on that podium, you had to be completely soulless to not cry along with him. I, it kind of reminds me of the first Peter Sagan World Championship, where we had a rider who was already sort of quite popular, and then you add the rainbow bands on top of that. You make them immediately visible within the peloton. You know, you, you just sort of put them up on this additional pedestal. And... I think it's I think it's ex extremely exciting for for cycling is to have a, a world champion like that. I mean, you know, no offense to to Mess Peterson, but he's just a, he's a much quieter rider. He's a much uh, he doesn't have the same uh, you know every single household that vaguely follows cycling does not necessarily know his name. Whereas Julian Alphilippe, like that's a name that that anybody who has watched the Tour de France in the last couple of years knows for sure. I think it's a good thing for bike racing coming into this coming year and i'm interested to see how how julian le le sort of leverages this right to, to further increase his own fan base and, and then hopefully beyond that kind of further increase the fan base of all of cycling which i think peter sagan for a number of years was, was very good at doing in, in terms of you know making it a sport that seemed cool from the outside you know we we go from this sort of leather jacket wearing peter sagan to well, Julian Alphilippe and his sort of like Johnny Depp pirate look. <laughs> Which, <laughs> Don't forget the grease. Uh, yes, and the grease. Yeah, anyway, I think it's good. I think it's he's obviously a fantastic world champion, and the potential is there to sort of be bigger than the sport in much the same way that, that Peter was. Shadi, do you have your hand up saying Yeah, just going back to what Dane says about that he's going to get a chance to do well quite a bit this season in the rainbow bands. I'm wondering how this is going to affect the next year because usually over the winter you've got the um, the world champ doing doing the circuit or the dinners or the, or the wine and dine greets. That does, well, cause the curse of the rainbow jersey. Obviously, 
with COVID, that, that's going to change things. Plus, on top of that, he's used to, I presume, doing this whining and dining stuff because he's such a big figure already. We spoke to Mads back at the Tour Down Under early on in the year, and he said he, he wasn't enjoying it he, uh, being a world champion as such because of the the amount of media pressure that was there. Um, but with Julian Alaphilippe, you do wonder if he's going to have an awesome end of the season and then be able to cope with this, the madness of the world champs and go into next season just as just as eager with a world band. But the, because I mean, the other thing is, he's been going awesome since the start of uh, season 2.0, since like Milan San Remo. Well, that's what I was going to say. Is he, he's Part of the trouble for him now is, yeah, he's got all these races coming up that normally he's very well suited for, but he just finished Tour de France and he needs to take a break and like, he's going to be tired coming coming into these next couple of weeks and there's really no time to recover between now and november i mean as we said we got 48 days coming up with the bike race every single day and julian alphilippe will be on the start list for a lot of those and so hopefully he can kind of hold this form as best as possible but it wouldn't surprise me if we see him a couple weeks from now just like kind of pulling the plug on, on some of this season because he, he along with a lot of the rest of the Peloton, has been going, going, going for a while now. Uh, how teams sort of balance the, the coming weeks is going to be super interesting, particularly with sort of the need to stick stars in various places. Uh, you know, where do you put Julian Alphilippe over the next six weeks? I, I don't know exactly which races you would want to put him in. As you say, he needs a break now. He's going to skip flesh. Do we see him sort of charge through the rest of the season? I don't know. The other thing is, there's quite a lot of riders now in the same mould as Alaphilippe. Like, we've just come out of Tour de France and there's been some absolutely stunning like attacks from riders who yeah do fit in the same mould as him. So you do wonder if like yeah he's going to be tired for the rest of the year, have to sort of take a little bit of the rest of the season out and then go into next year showing the World Champs jersey off to its fullest. Or is he going to try and have a really good end of the season, which will then obviously affect next season because there's only going to be, what, two weeks off we know racing at this rate. <laughs> he strikes me as the kind of rider who's just going to keep going until he can't go anymore. That seems to be yeah. how he races, and I would imagine that's probably how he approaches the remainder of the calendar and just says, I'm going to keep starting in races and keep attacking until my legs fail me, basically. Flanders was also a big target for him this year, so I think even with the rainbow bands, even with being tired from doing the tour, I would expect him to kind of stay, stay in it until October 18th for the tour of Flanders. Yeah. Um, and then after that, who knows? But in between then, we've got Liège, we've got Amstel, we've got Flanders, and those are three races where I think Julian Alaphilippe could win. So that's that's pretty cool. Assuming he races all of them, uh, that's pretty cool. And he can do them twice in the rainbow jersey. How that's about right. that? <laughs> Which on the on the flip side, you got to feel bad for Matt Pedersen because he's a classics rider, like first and yeah. foremost. I mean, his his big skill set is riding a race like Flanders or Paris Roubaix, and he never got the chance to ride his his like most uh, comfortable races as the as the world champion. I mean, he he was at the tour. He did a, had a great tour with some second place finishes on stages where I don't know. I didn't expect him to sprint as well as he did, but he ended up not having a chance to wear the rainbow bands at Flanders, which is kind of a it's kind of a bummer for him. One last. One last thing about the World Championship for me. Um, imagine being Marion Rousse, who is uh, the partner of uh, Julien Alaphilippe and also the expert commentator on the French television. I was told that she couldn't speak anymore for the last kilometers. So 
That was um, that must have been such a special moment for her. I once did the World Championships in Norway on Eurosport with uh, former Dutch national champion Iris Slappendel and her best friend Chantal Black won that race. And she couldn't speak and she was crying on my side for the final three kilometers. And I was just urging her on to speak to avoid to have one of my monologues. Um, so I can, I can just imagine what it would be like for her to sit in that commentary booth and see the one that you love after all that he's been through this year, losing his father. And of course, she has been going through that as well, um, being his partner. That must, been, that must have been a hard and also very uh, beautiful moment for, for her. So, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I was what I was watching the French TV coverage, and yeah, she did go silent for like well, for the last five k or so. You didn't hear a peep from her, and then <laughs> yeah, we you read the newspaper this morning. She she was saying that yeah, she was that emotional. She couldn't go on TV, which I think's um, a little bit sad, really, because hey, look look at her podcast the other week when Abby started crying on mid podcast. People were loving it. And there is a there is a section of uh, the public here in France that haven't taken to her as a commentator, and you do wonder if like she had showed that emotion on television that yeah people might have warmed her a little bit more. That the people that aren't aren't one hundred percent keen on her personally, I think she does a, a blooming awesome job, from what I can understand at least. I, I must add, I must add as as a woman who has done commentary and. Who knows what happens in the future? Um, being too emotional as a woman is never going to is never appreciated by the audience, because when a woman gets emotional, uh, pitch goes up, and people often tend to think that we're hysterical. It's not fair. It's not a great great thing, but it's it's reality. And when I became enthusiastic, I remember a stage with Tom Dumoulin on Comre del Sol when he was overtaken by Froome and then overtook Froome again and won that stage. I got a lot of criticism for that. And I know it's ridiculous, but it's, it's, it's how the world works for women in media. So I understand her choice of not saying anything at all in that respect. I, I do yeah, think there's a, a difference between that. Yours obviously was a nationalistic uh, pride there where I think people know She's the partner of Alain Philippe, and they, I think they would have been forgiving of it. Personally, that's what I would have, would have thought, at least. So I, would, I think there would be a, a difference there. Then again, I could be wrong. I think I think most people would probably would probably agree with you, Shadi. But then again, the internet is the internet, and uh, well, we we have a comment section. <laughs> we know what that looks like sometimes. So yeah, I, I don't I don't blame her at all for just wanting to step step away from the mic for a little bit. She might have just not wanted to swear live on TV, going, yes, he's won, in hell. (laughs) Also true. Grand merde, grand merde. (laughs) Shall we step away from Worlds and talk about what's coming down the pike now? We've got this crazy calendar coming up. We've got literally six months worth of racing compressed into the next six weeks, five weeks, whatever it is. Uh... Let's take this in chunks. So every episode for the remainder of the fall, uh, the autumn, and I guess if you're Australian, the spring, for the next month and a half, we'll just tell you what's coming up. Because frankly, the calendar is all moved around and the normal sequence of events that you are used to is not going to happen this fall. So, Dane, what do we have coming up 
this week, this weekend, into early next week. Yeah, first off this week, starting on Tuesday, is the Bink Bank Tour, which is full of some big names this year. Uh, we're going to see Matthew Vanderpool in action, I think. Uh, should be a good one, good little prelude to the actual, you know, real one-day cobbled classics. Um, La Flesh Wallone is also this week. Uh, that will start on Wednesday. Uh, this year, it is before the Amstel Gold Race because of some rescheduling magic. Uh, so Flesh Wallone on Wednesday, and then liege Bastogne liege on Sunday. Uh, so if you like the one-day races, lots to enjoy there. Um, if you like stage races, if you like three-week races, well, there's also a race for you to enjoy. It's called the Giro d'Italia. Uh, it starts this weekend, amazingly. Uh, we are into Giro territory now. So on Saturday, the Giro d'Italia rolls out for three weeks of racing in Italy with, again, obviously, some very, very big names. Uh, so if you were getting out of Grand Tour mode after the Tour de France, uh, don't. Get back into it, because uh, we still have two more to go. So that's what we got in the in the very near term. Uh, that's what's that's what's coming up. Are we going to run dailies during the Giro? You know... Absolutely not. I don't think I can get up. <laughs> I don't know anything yeah, about Italian yeah. history, people. Sorry. <laughs> can we no, get we, Dane, we, like, a caffeine sponsor or, like, yeah, caffeine tablets or... Something like that for the next forty-eight days. Have you never seen? Have you never seen those at Italian gas stations? They have like chocolate, and then inside yeah, is like them. pure coffee. We should get that as a sponsor. Yeah, we I was should because Dane, 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 our poor, Dane, our poor news editor is gonna gonna need it over the next <laughs> next couple of weeks. We will we'll run a couple extra episodes throughout the Giro, but we will not be running dailies throughout the Giro because um, we have other things that we need to do with our day <laughs> dailies throughout the entire Giro and the Vuelta. Uh, so we're not going to do a full preview of all the races that are coming up here, but we did want to briefly preview the Giro. We'll do a deeper dive into the Giro next week. So that'll be a couple stages into the Giro, uh, but we'll dig into, you know, the, the remainder of the route and, and contenders and things like that next week. But briefly, Dane, let's do like the three minute Giro preview version. What do, what do we got coming up at this year's Giro? Uh, we have, in comparison, I think, to the Tour de France, a very balanced and traditional style Grand Tour. Of course, the Tour only had one TT. It was in the penultimate stage. Uh, the Giro, it has some very high mountains, and it has three time trials. So it's a little bit more like the Grand Tours of 10 years ago, uh, or even five years ago. Uh, and quite a few stars in attendance who are hoping to win the Giro d'Italia. Um, to me, there's like five or six who kind of stand stand out as the, the big favorites. You got Gary Thomas who looked pretty good at Trento Adriatico, uh, as did Simon Yates, who won Trento Adriatico, both of those riders, uh, trying to win this year to tell you. Jakob Fulsong, Stephen Kreiswick, who was hoping to ride the Tour. Uh, instead, he'll be riding the Giro after getting hurt at the Dauphiné. And, of course, Vincenzo Nibali, former winner. Uh, so I think those are your big your big five, and then there's plenty of other names down there as well uh, that, that we'll probably talk about maybe next week um, as the race is getting underway. But it looks like a race that's going to favor, a, yeah, very a very strong all-round rider. You can't be a pure climber and just hope to get away with it um, with a with a rough time trial because there is enough time trialing to make this race uh, one for well a rider like Aaron Thomas who can do both. Um, uh, everybody else in the in you know in that group of favorites I mentioned is an okay time trialist, but he's he's probably the the star time trialist of that group. Uh, so you got to like his chances uh, if he's in form. Well, we'll dig into that a little bit more beginning of next week. Shall we chat with Inigo? Yes. So a bit of a bit of background on Inigo Semilan. Uh, I've known Inigo for 
five or six years now. I used to interview him somewhat regularly when I used to make the the Fast Talk podcast with my friend Trevor. Um, That remains a fantastic podcast uh, if you are interested in, in sort of the deep dive on physiology and training and things like that. But anyway, known Indigo for a while. Indigo is it's a very very long history in cycling. Um, he was actually a, a quite a good cyclist back in his own uh, youth, and lately has been uh, he, he works over at the CU Center for for sports science or medical science or something like that, um, and does both cancer research, which is sort of his primary gig, and then on the side of that does quite a bit of sort of sports physiology and athletic performance stuff. And the two actually, they go hand in hand, surprisingly, because what he's specifically looking at in terms of his cancer research is sort of the the, the role of, uh, I guess, sort of mitochondria in cancer. I don't know. I don't know anything about cancer research. But anyway, his the two things are, are very much go hand in hand. And a lot of the tests that he does on athletes are some of the same tests that he is developing to detect cancers and to help treat cancers. Uh, I personally find Inigo to be one of the most uh, trustworthy, I guess is the right word, uh, sports physiologists uh, that I've ever encountered. And a big part of that is, is this the, is the fact that his primary, his primary job is cancer research and the, the rest of this is sort of a side project. Um, and that that very fact alone, I think, makes him quite credible, uh, which is particularly relevant when we're discussing the 21-year-old winner of the Tour de France, who he coaches, because he has quite a lot of faith in young Tadej Pogacar, and I have a reasonable amount of faith in Inigo San Milan, uh, which, frankly, makes me feel better about the end result. Now, you're, you're going to hear, we're going to split this interview into two parts, because it's it, originally was about an hour long. We're going edit to da- edit it down a little bit and then split it in half. Um but yeah, you'll hear Inigo talk about sort of some of the early the early signs from Pogacar uh, that that Pogacar was going to be something special, going back to all the, you know when he was 18, 19 years old, some of the early testing that they did there, uh, and then I ask him quite bluntly at the end, sort of how how we can all believe that performance, uh, particularly the one on Planche de Belfi. So that will probably be in actually that will definitely be in next week's episode but without further ado let's drop into a chat with inigo inigo i've known you for a long time but in case our listeners don't know who you are uh a little bit about sort of your background and and well basically the reason we're talking to you today what have you been up to as of late well i'm i'm in different uh areas so i'm a i'm an associate research professor at the university of colorado at the uh and the Department of Human Physiology and Nutrition, Colorado Springs, and also the Department of uh, Medicine in, in a division of endocrinology, diabetes, and metabolism of uh, the School of Medicine. And I, mm-hmm. you know, my main focus this these past years has been uh, doing research in areas like cancer and diabetes, and uh, cardiometabolic disease, and uh, also something also with sports. But I've been involved with uh, athletes uh, for about 25 years, and. Uh, <clears throat> And about, yeah, the end of 2018, the uh, team UEA just asked me if I wanted to build a performance program for them. And uh, so I, I saw that in a way I, I feel like going back to, to cycling. And because I had the bug, uh, it was a very challenging project because it was about building a whole uh, platform. Um, 
and also yeah it's just i'm not i'm not gonna lie the funds were good for my research so they i needed funds for my research and this was like a good uh, opportunity so that means you came on just about the same time as tade pogacar our 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 new tour de france champion right yeah exactly the same time yes so let's sort of dive right into it then i mean this kid is it appears from the outside to be absolutely incredible. You've dealt with him since he was even younger than he is now. I'm assuming you were doing tests on him right when right when he first came onto the team. Yeah. What what did you see in him when you first well, when you first came in contact with him basically? What what did you see in Tare? Yeah, so I mean obviously he he's a, a tour um, um tour de l'avenir winner, right? So right away, I mean, you, you don't get to be tour de l'avenir winner by a, by a chance, right? And and, and if we look ret- retrospectively most through the eleven years, they end up being one of the best ones in, in their decade as professionals, right? So it was no brainer that this guy had something, right? So but that that's when you know I did the first uh, test uh, to him, and I do a you know the first physiological and lactate test, and right in when it was like end of October, whatever we did uh, the first training camp, and that's when I realized that wow, this guy is it's 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 very very good. You know, it's too, it's too good. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, because I have a, I started this protocol that I do uh, about 20 years ago with cyclists where I, I, um, I've been testing hundreds of them, right? So I have built a very, very strong database, one of the probably strongest out there. And uh, so it's my uh, cheat sheet, cheat sheet, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's my cheat sheet and, uh, and excuse my French. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> So, and uh, it is, you know, like I've, I've been using quite a bit because it's, it's a very reliable test. I, I, I don't do what's absolute watts. I do watts per kilogram. So I normalize everything. And instead of doing one or two minute steps, I do 10 minute steps, right? So it really, really discriminates. And uh, what I saw that it, he was better than the average of the world class hmm. right there, you know? And that's why I said, wow, this guy is, is very, very good. And then th- that's when I start to coach him. Yeah, personally, and, and, and the one thing that I kept seeing uh, during his, you know, through training picks, we have all the uh, information on a daily basis, and I'm in touch with him every day. Uh, so I right away, in the moment he enters home from training, I have all his, his data. And, you know, it's spectacular because he, he never has a bad day training. Huh. You know, he's always good, always good, uh, really, really good numbers. He can put out very excellent numbers training and also massive amounts of uh, good training and, and and keeps going, right? Whereas most cyclists, you know, within, a, let's say, a, a three-week period, we do like micro cycles of four weeks, uh, three weeks usually training and, and one week uh, uh, recovery. Training too, right? But recovery. and uh, But it's very difficult, you know, not to have a bad day within a th- three-big day, I mean, a three-week block. And Tade doesn't have bad days, you know, and, and that's one thing that shocked me too. Which is good if you're doing a three-week Grand Tour as well. Well, yeah, that's that's a good analogy. Three-week uh, micro. I never thought of that way. Three-week <laughs> mi- mi- um, uh, microcycle uh, in the three-week stages. But but yeah, it's uh, he he's very good. And and then his head. That's the, the aspect that, as you know, is very important. You know, I've seen many world-class cyclists or or potentially great world-class cyclists, but they, they didn't have it. In the head, mentally, they were not maybe prepared. Some, 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 some of them are very anxious. There's the fear to 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 lose, but there are also the fear to win, right? Mm-hmm. 
and uh, and the anxiety and the, the nutrition. Am I eating too much? Am I eating too little? Am I training too much, too little? Uh, Tade is not that, like that. that. Tade doesn't care. Tade huh. is uh, the most relaxed kid that, that you can start seeing, and that's what I saw from, from the get-go. And, and we have a very new platform, is Metabolomics, where uh, we can, with uh, two, three drops of blood, we can see uh, between one to 2,000 parameters in the blood. <clears throat> They're indica- indicators, indicators of the metabolism. It's not in the clinical space yet. It's the future of, of diagnostics in many areas. But we're doing now at the research level, you can see like in cancer, for example, you can see how the cells, the cancer cells work and, and use energy and how they evolve, right? You can see in diabetes in other areas, right? So I decided with, with my college at the university to take it outside the laboratory and, and, and implement it, right? But anyways, we, we saw in the tour of California last year, his, his, his recovery capacity is at a whole different level. It is like, holy shit. So we... we no, it's unbelievable. So uh, we, and this is what led us to take him to Welta too, because uh, we saw, hey, according to these parameters, clearly, you know, it doesn't matter if he's 20, he's going to recover better than anybody almost. Uh, and, and on top of that, you know, he's going to be competitive. So mentally it's a different problem. If after two weeks he wants to leave, okay. But uh, he's going to be very competitive from day one. Anyway, but we were very sure because of this data, for example, right? I don't know how much you can speak to, to sort of specifics and details of some of like the testing parameters and things that, that you had him go through. But c- could you provide some sort of um, like, like context, I guess, around, you know, precisely what you were seeing? I mean, what, what, what kind yeah. of tests were you doing and, and like how much better was he than the average sort of elite athlete that you had coming through the, the system? So the main parameter that I look, as I mentioned there, is lactate. And that's what I, I look in the uh, what is the the, the watts per the lactate at multiple watts per kilogram. So it's very well defined overall, especially when you have hundreds of professional cycles over time, and it builds up. Uh, it really gives a very good idea. So um, let's say at, at three point five watts per kilogram, right? So most uh, let's say four even four watts per kilogram, right? Like the average world tour cyclist is about two millimoles. Right, uh, uh, that's the average pro, pro uh, world tour. Tade might be 0.9 or one, wow. right? Um, 4.5. They're going to be about three three millimoles. Tade is about maybe 1.5. See things like that, right? So that's when I say, wow, you know, he has an, an amazing lactate clearance capacity. And what means is that, and, and I've been seeing this quite a bit. And you know him. They always talk about mitochondria, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so that, that's a that's a surrogate of mitochondrial function, right? Uh, the, the reason why the lactate in the blood is so low, it means it's because it's not exported to the blood because it's uh, it is uh, oxidized or recycled for energy in the mitochondria, and therefore it, it doesn't not just build up, which is important, but it's reutilized for energy purposes as opposed to be exported to the blood. And this is outstanding parameter. So what means that is that when he travels through a race, translating into the competition, many of uh, the, you know, this tour has been very fast. So the average watts per kilogram of many stages has been about 3.5 to 4 watts per kilogram. And that's how kind of how I measure many, I measure many parameters, but I really like to measure that in watts per kilogram because it normalizes. I, I don't tend to say, oh, the average today's watts was 200 or 250 or 180. I run a, what is normalized to your weight, right? So 3.54 watts per kilogram, that's something that it's, it's very manageable for today. 
mm. right? So he finished, he, ends, he, he gets to the last part of that race uh, better than most. And not only that, he finished that stage uh, with less fatigue than the next ones. So that means that the next day he's not going to be so bad, you know, and he's not going to be well done. This is one of the things that we see. You're going to have to excuse this sort of elementary question here because the most I remember about mitochondria is the fact that they're the powerhouse of the cell from from high school <laughs> biology. Uh, so can, can you explain this process a little bit more to me, the fact that he's he's reusing lactate within his actual cells to produce additional energy, basically? Yeah. So so mitochondria, yes, yeah, so you said very well, are the powerhouse of the cell, right? So this is, this is the only place where we can burn fat during exercise, right? So, uh, and it all it is also where we uh, remove, we, we recycle or clear the lactate, right? So mitochondria in muscles resides mainly in the uh, slow twitch muscle fibers. And this is where we use fat as a fuel, right? So it's lower intensity, if you will, right? But during exercise, we recruit uh, the fast twitch muscle fibers, which are very uh, uh, glycolytic. They use a lot of glucose for energy. And the mandatory byproduct of glucose utilization is lactate. So the fast twitch muscle fibers they produce a lot of lactate. Now, it's not lactate per se, but the hydrogen ions associated to lactate, they build up and uh, they create an acidic microenvironment that is, is characteristic, not just in, in, uh, in, in exercise, but in cancer, for example, is the hottest area in cancer now, the microenvironment, where we're doing research too. But anyways, that, that acidic microenvironment in, in specifically to the muscles, it decreases the force of contraction and velocity of the fibers, right? So you need to get rid of that. And the way to get rid of that, you send, or the, the, the fast-twitch muscle fiber send that lactate to the adjacent muscle fiber, the slow-twitch one, mm -hmm. to the mitochondria. And in the mitochondria, that lactate is recycled back to energy. But for that, you need to have a very good function. And, 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 and it gets to a point, and this is the characteristic, not just of today, of, uh -huh. of, of all the top ones, right? But today is probably better than the, than the other ones. But if you cannot recycle much lactate, it builds up. So your option then is to, to send it to the blood. Mm. So on one hand, yeah, it's going to be building up faster in the cells. And second, you're not going to be able to recycle much lactate back to energy. You, you're missing that uh, opportunity. And this is why this, not just today, but you know, the world class are so privileged in that sense. I don't know if it makes sense. So they're literally taking they're taking a, a byproduct of work, and uh, and turning it into more work. Basically, is that yeah. is that a very simplified yeah. way of saying it? In a way, it's like yeah, in a car, right? CO two, right, is the byproduct mm -hmm. of uh, gasoline utilization. Uh, but imagine they that you were able to recycle that back to energy, back to the car, right? As huh. opposed to go to pollute the environment. So, I mean, it's way more complicated and difficult <laughs> than that, right? But if that helps us an analogy. But again, this is not just today, right? This is, this is a characteristic of, of all the professionals, right? Mm -hmm. But within the pros, the top ones are better. And within the top ones, someone like today is even better. Right. I, I mean, you've dealt with, with other professionals who are at the very, very, very top of cycling, right? A, a, and have you seen anybody like this at this age? No, never. Does age, does age have any effect on it uh, at all? It, it, this is the this is what uh, we're in my opinion we're seeing a phenomenon of these new kids coming into cycling right that we have never seen before right I don't in my modest opinion I don't think it's a coincidence right but uh, I no I have never seen this in a, this in any cyclist before but I think that uh, normally as you age you get better that's what mm -hmm. we I, I strongly think and 
and looking at his progress from from when I when I met him first, you know, he he made good progress in 2019 already, right? And he finished third in Vuelta, and he could have won Vuelta, you know, <laughs> if if Movistar didn't have, I mean, he should have, could have, would obviously, but in yeah. that famous stage, Movistar was was uh, organizing the chase, and if, if they hadn't done it, you know, he would have won Vuelta. Right. But uh, but anyways, but this year he's at a higher level, right? The thing is, like, will he be even next year a higher level? We don't know. But but yeah, it's just not not normally. Yeah, if you do, you know, physiologically, you can improve more each year, you know. And until we still don't know. And and this is what we're seeing more and more in athletes. There, some of them are picking when they're thirty or thirty-one, right. right? We don't know, you know. But they also think with these new kids is that they come more prepared, you know, than uh, than. Than other years or, or other decades. Pivoting a little bit, so you're you're Tade's coach. You're you're giving him daily workouts and things like that. Yes, every day. How do you how do you handle coaching an athlete who sort of sits outside of the parameters of athletes that you've dealt with before? So, like, do you give him more workload than you give other athletes, for example? Well, we try. Uh, I, I'm I'm never happy with with the parameters that I see. Right because I think that uh, they can always improve. And uh, uh, so that's, that's what I, we, we thrive for. Um, one of the things that uh, the way I look at uh, coaching uh, and might be from my, you know, physiology, the physiologist in me and the research behind is like I look at bioenergetics and energy systems, right? So there, there are the three major energy systems. One is the oxidative energy system, which is, previously been called or still called out there like the aerobic component but that's kind of where you uh, oxidize fat for energy and you also uh, um, uh, use the mitochondria so we, we really focus on that system and uh, and then there's the other system which is the glycolytic system it's the turbo that's where you when you're in the races that's when you attack that's when you go high intensity uh, and that's where you need to improve that system call it lactate threshold training if you will right so we focus that yeah, on that training a lot, um, and th- those are the main aspects. Uh, and and it doesn't matter if you're here at a very high level or lower level; you always have room for improvement, right? Whether you're, especially when you're 21, right? So that's why we keep we keep pushing and pushing and pushing, and and that's where like we hit those uh, sweet spots of training based on the metabolic testing that we do, and that's where we find finalize the training zones, which are key to improve those energy systems. And that's where we keep pushing it and pushing it. And, um, yeah, and we see that, yeah, in 2019, he improved from the previous year. And this year, he improved for the last year. And I have no idea. I am nobody to tell you because I don't have the answer if he's going to even improve more next year. At some point, he will kind of level off, I guess. But, uh, or, or he will keep improving, but a lower percentage each year, right? But I, I, I have no doubt that he still has or he should have uh, room for improvement still. That's a little bit terrifying if you're a. a I know, <laughs> but the same thing. I, I mean, I think like we look at uh, Bernal, right? Okay, the things didn't go well this year, but he's a great rider. Even Roglic, Roglic has still room for improvement, right? He's better than this year than the year before, and the year before was better than the year before. So we don't have any reason to think that he's just going to plateau, right? Even when he's like 27 or. Yeah. But uh, uh, and, and another guy is like Remco Evenpo, right? You know, I, I have absolutely no doubt that that guy, maybe next year, he's going to be a, a, a big contender for the Tour de France because he's, a, in my opinion, a very similar level of what Tadej could be. 
and, and you know, five years later or three years later would be someone joining, you know, who's now 16 or 17, right? It's such a, it's such a strange thing. I mean, like you said, it's, it's, it is, it is only in the last couple of years that we've seen these athletes show up so young and so kind of ready, ready to go. Uh, is there any concern that, that, you know, they're being stuck in the deep end too early? Yeah, that's a great question. I think physically, I don't think so, because this is another advantage that we have over, over other generations where our monitoring nowadays is, is you know, at a whole, in a, from a whole different level, right? Uh, you know, we, we monitor the training every day. You know, we, I, you know, something that before we would send like a, the training program for a month or for a week, right? And we would not know if, if that athlete is doing well or not. We just have to call him on the phone and, hey, how you doing, man? Like, I'm doing good. Like, okay, I guess. <laughs> you know, now, now we can see it, you know, and, and I am the first one who, who sees that something's not right, right? Today's training, the, the maximal heart rate is not as good or the power output is something is wrong. And, and I can call the athlete and say, hey, what, what happened today? Like, how do you know? Well, I, I look into that that climb that you had to do today, the effort. Yeah, I just don't have the good day. Like, okay, you know, but if, if we didn't have that, you know, that athlete, you know, would get overtrained, fatigued. And, and I think that that over time builds up. So I think that we have other parameters also like biomarkers, you know, from blood, bi blood biomarkers. They're indicative of overtraining, of fatigue, of recovery. And we didn't have that before necessarily. So I think that that helps us to protect athletes. And we look also that... Um, in the last uh, um, years, also we also seen that a very high number of professionals in all sports who they they retire in their late thirties, right. right? Whereas before, you know, you were thirty, thirty one, and you were you were a dinosaur already, <laughs> and now no, they're they're peaking even, right? So, and I think this is a result of all this, right? There's a better monitoring of the athlete, better nutrition, better training programs, you know, uh, monitoring, you know, and 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 that. Obviously, I think that we can't deny the progress in science, you know, and that is going to reflect ultimately in, in the human physiology and performance, right, and human limits. Well, that kind of brings me to, to the next question, which is that it feels like the human limit is higher every year over the last couple of years. And so I'm interested to hear sort of your thoughts on what's responsible for, for things like, okay, you know, Tade just climbed that climb at the same pace as, as Vinokurov, right? Who we know was doing shady things. So is, where's the gap? Where's the gap coming from? So if it's, if it's, if, you know, where did he find the six, 7% that used to be found illicitly? And, you know, I'm, I'm going to believe you and say that, that, you know, it's not found illicitly anymore, right? Where, so where, where are they finding it now? Yeah. So I think that uh, on one hand is the, uh, you know, when you, you mentioned that, right, he's going at the same pace or same time or even better time, right? Well, you know, that was, you know, 15 years ago or 20 years ago, some of those times, right? Now, I will ask you, you know, um, uh, with all your respect, right? Like, if, you know, your PR on Flagstaff, you're still in Boulder, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, so, and I'm sure you, you, you have done Flagstaff a million times, right? Oh, yes. Like, and I'm sure you have a PR. Like, would you dare to do that PR with a 20-year-old bike? <laughs> probably not <laughs> you, you would be three minutes behind right yeah. or two minutes so i think that it's undeniable that technology it's 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 a low into this right that's it that being said it's not everything of course you know but again i think that you know we can monitor athletes better at a level that we have never been able to do and be more specific with training and we have learned a lot how to improve that and nutrition we have a 
completely different protocols of nutrition, you know, when it comes to a competition, especially, it's very, very important to eat in competition, you know. I was, uh, you know, for example, I uh, it was 12, 13 years ago, I started to say that from what I do in the laboratory, I measure in the laboratory fat and carbohydrate oxidation rates. So I can see how many grams per minute an athlete is burning at different intensities. Mm-hmm. So with that, like, yeah, 13, 12 years ago, I decided to, to change the guidelines on my own. You know, the guidelines call for 30 to 55 grams per minute of, per hour of carbohydrates. I proposed 80 to 100. Mm-hmm. I was crucified, believe me, <laughs> by uh, so many nutritionists around the world. That's absolutely impossible. And that was a, over a decade ago. That's a whole generation of cyclists, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I started doing it. And we started doing it on, with Garmin in 2009 already, you know. And uh, it worked really well. Uh, now, many of those criticizing me, they're the ones now giving uh, talks around the world and giving guidelines of how they have to use 90 grams per hour, right? But anyways, but that, that, that's, that, that helps tremendously, tremendously, you know, and that's fuel during the race, right? So that's another aspect. And a very important aspect that not many people talk about is altitude. Mm. Everybody does altitude. There's not one rider going into the France, I would say, that hasn't done altitude. Maybe it's one or two or three, maybe, sure. But in general, everybody's done altitude. And if you, I mean, you live in Colorado, as I do, and, and you know if you have friends coming over to Colorado and spend for three, hour, three weeks or more, they go back to California or New York and they're flying, right? Well, it's the same thing. You know, you, you go back to, to sea level with three points or hematocrit, and that alone is an, an extra 20 watts, hmm. right? Uh, and we see it, you know, I mean, or, or you, Kali, when you go to sea level, on vacation and you're by, you're like, holy crap, is that me? I feel amazing. <laughs> right? You feel amazing. So yeah. why is that going to be different in cycling, professional cycling, right? So again, we have the technology of the equipment, we have the nutrition, we have the monitoring, the more precise training, and then we have the altitude. So yeah, I, I why that's, why, you know, why is not that going to improve, right? Of, absolutely. And you think all of that sort of together adds up to a similar level or even more than than you know what with what what epo did 20 years ago you think that's a base roughly equivalent i don't know for what we're seeing i mean back then they 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 were faster too in 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 many aspects but uh from what we're seeing is that i mean they're definitely way faster and 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 likewise i I, i'm not going to name names but i know guys who they were the best at doing altitude four or five years ago when nobody did altitude, right? And uh, that's what they, 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 they were living at altitude. They were, they were competing at first training camp, competition, go back to altitude, competition, go back to altitude. They were the whole year like that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they, they, they kicked butt big time. They had an advantage on everybody else, those 20 extra watts. And believe me, you go three, three weeks at altitude, you're gonna improve 15, 20, 25 watts. Right. Uh, you, you've seen it probably, right? Uh, and, personally, um, yeah, I mean, it's at least twenty for me, and I and I do fewer watts, so I'm assuming it's a percentage thing, right? Exactly. So for them, it could be even more. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that minimum what I see is as an average twenty is is, is very very normal, right? Mm. And this is like imagine going up a climb at twenty watts more, when you're like at three hundred and ninety watts and going for ten, you know that that's that's huge right there, right? So, so but but what happened to these cyclists is like now everybody does that. Mm-hmm. And they can't do it anymore. It, what, what it used to be an advantage is not an advantage anymore. And in fact, we're seeing, and I'm 
Again, I'm not going to name names, but we're seeing that they have kind of disappeared, you know, uh, because everybody's doing what they used to do, the altitude. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, yeah, if I guess if everyone's at altitude, then no one's at altitude. It's, it's kind of kind of the same. Yeah. Thing, right. Everybody just goes faster. Right. But yeah, right. I, I agree. But but that's the thing. And this is what I, 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 I told the team last year, like uh, we, we we the whole team has to do altitude, not just the leaders, the whole freaking team. This is what Bora did last year. This is what Ineos has done always for the last decade, right? This is what um, um, uh, uh, Jumbo did last year, that quick, quick step, right? And they kicked ass last year. There was right. a huge gap. Now, this year, is, it's a little bit different, right? There's more of a, um, well, Jumbo is stronger than the rest, but the rest, including us, we, we, we're at a similar level. It's not like we didn't have a, incredibly superior team as we right. have seen right we, we we really need to improve in that aspect right but i think that yeah now everybody does altitude and if you do not do altitude you are at a big disadvantage you know all right that right there was the first half of our chat with inigo samalan coach to tade pogacar and cancer researcher for the second half of that, make sure you tune in to next week's episode. And the rest of us, well, we'll all be back as well next Monday. We'll see you there. Bye. 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 Bye.